Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. You may know that we're very fortunate to have a major sponsor of Animals Today, the organization International Society for Animal Rights, or ISAR. Each year, ISAR sponsors International Homeless Animals Day, which are events held around the globe to raise awareness and inspire action about homeless pets and dog and cat overpopulation. International Homeless Animals Day is commemorated on the third Saturday of August. ISAR is only one of many organizations working hard on behalf of dogs and cats in need, and especially to reduce homelessness and to prevent euthanasia of adoptable dogs and cats in shelters. In addition to the larger, more well-known groups like Humane Society of the United States, ASPCA, and Best Friends Animal Society, there are thousands of shelters, rescue groups, and other animal welfare organizations throughout the country committed to saving the lives of homeless pets through collaboration on and implementation of spay-neuter programs, educational efforts to prevent the return of animals to shelters, and effective adoption programs. There are organizations and individuals watching over and helping our community or free-roaming cats. Others focus on fostering and transporting pets. And legal minds work to fight breed discriminatory legislation. This collaborative, multifaceted effort is powered by the generosity and dedication of innumerable volunteers and paid employees, all with huge hearts and the desire to improve the lives of dogs and cats in need. So how well are we doing? Are we getting closer to a time when we're no longer euthanizing dogs and cats who should be in loving homes which they deserve? A quick internet search may reveal a trend toward improvement, but it's hard to gauge. There are many sources and varying estimates on the figures, such as the number of animals entering shelters, the rates of euthanasia of dogs and cats in shelters, and so on. There's no national clearinghouse for these figures. But it's pretty clear that the 6 million adoptable dogs and cats euthanized in U.S. shelters each year, the estimate that was commonly given when I started to understand the issues, is no longer accurate and that it's a lot less now. And so we have a lot to be proud of and to be happy for. A lot of inertia had to be overcome and old-fashioned thinking destroyed to get where we are now. But on the other hand, maybe the progress so far was the easier part, the low-hanging fruit, and what remains is going to be tougher. We all want to reach that goal where every single dog and cat has a home and a time when healthy dogs and cats are no longer euthanized in shelters. So today, I'm going to explore this topic in a bit of detail with two experts, and I'm going to pose more or less the same questions to them on where we've been and where we are now and the current challenges in solving the remaining dog and cat homelessness problem. And I want to acknowledge both the Humane Society of the United States and Best Friends Animal Society for making these guests available so we can all learn from the best sources around. So now let's begin with Inga Fricke, Director of Shelter Initiatives and Outreach for the Humane Society of the United States. Welcome, Inga. Thank you so much for having me. Inga, reflecting over the past 20 to 30 years, please talk about the progress and achievements made in terms of reducing the number of adoptable dogs and cats euthanized in the U.S. due to overpopulation. We have made tremendous strides over the past few decades. It really is remarkable. It may not feel that way from the outside, but from within the industry, the change has been dramatic. Back in the 1970s, we were seeing euthanasia rates 
with estimates of anything from 10 million to 15 million to some estimates were 20 million animals being euthanized and so many more winding up in our shelter and rescue systems. But thanks to the efforts of some really early pioneers that focused on efforts like uh, increasing protections for animals in our communities, supporting pet owners to better take care of the animals they have, and increasing, expanding dramatically high-quality, high-volume spay-neuter services, those numbers have dropped precipitously. So even though the one and a half estimated million animals still being euthanized in shelters is obviously one and a half million too many, it certainly is a huge, dramatic decrease from what it was back in the day. And it's important to note that's actually at the same time that pet ownership has continued to expand exponentially within our nation. Uh, The last estimate I saw was there are 184 million cats and dogs being kept as pets across the country. And that doesn't even count the population of an estimated 30 to 40 million community cats out there that also potentially wind up as part of our shelter populations. So we really have come a tremendous way towards helping make sure that no healthy adoptable animal has to be euthanized around the country. The numbers are trending all in the right direction. And we are all working together towards that day when no healthy adoptable animal ever has to be euthanized anywhere. Inga, currently, what do you see as the greatest challenges or hindrances to further reducing the number of adoptable animals killed to as close to zero as possible? Well, right now, we are definitely seeing some geographic disparities. Mm -hmm. Um, Shelters in the northern tier of the country, particularly the northeast and the northwest, really have invested so many resources in those prevention efforts like neuter like safety net programs, that they're actually importing animals for adoption because they have reduced their overpopulation problem to just about zero. Unfortunately, in some of parts of the country, particularly the South and some parts of the Midwest, that infrastructure was started much, much later. So many places just don't have those resources, even in this day and age, to help implement the policies and programs that are necessary to eliminate overpopulation. And those tend to be the areas that are still, unfortunately, having to euthanize animals for space and transporting them up north to the shelters that are looking for them. So it is not an issue of uh, disparity in will to do right by the animals. It really has to do with this disparity in resource availability and services that are available to help address those population problems in certain areas. Inga, where should we as a society and as cities and towns and as individuals focus our attention and money and energy right now to eliminate euthanasia due to overpopulation and unwanted dogs and cats? Well, obviously, adoption is what everyone talks about and what we encourage. And we are so happy that so many people around the country heed that message and are very proud now to share that they have adopted their animal or they have a rescue pet. But that really is just one small piece of the equation. What's ultimately going to help solve the problem is addressing the root causes 
of pet homelessness and making changes on the community level so that those animals never even enter the shelter population. That means addressing things like housing options. In many communities, it's almost impossible to find some place to live, particularly if you have a dog that's of a specific breed or a specific size. Um, Temporary issues, people may lose their job or lose their housing and then not have a place to keep their animal, and that separates them. Those kinds of temporary problems need attention so that people aren't permanently separated from their pets because of a temporary crisis in their life. Even things like um, having food pantries available or providing behavioral support to address challenges before someone gets to the point where they feel like they can no longer care for that animal. And certainly having widely accessible, high quality, high volume spay neuter is one of the true keys to reducing shelter intake. So it really is, shelters nowadays are working on multiple levels. They're obviously working to ensure that every animal in their system receives the best care possible, receives that highest quality of life and the five freedoms. They're working every angle to make sure that outcomes are positive for that animal, including adoptions, but also transport partnerships and um, transfers to other organizations. Um, enhanced uh, return-to-owner programs, things like that. But they also have to look at the broader community to try and address why animals are coming in in the first place and solve those root cause problems. So whereas back in the 70s and before then, people were really just focused on how do I manage the animals in my shelter today, nowadays shelter professionals are really expected to run the gamut and help their community from start to finish in terms of the entire life cycle of that animal. And that's a lot to ask, particularly in those communities that are not yet funded the way they should be or given the resources that they need to truly address those pressing needs. Don't go away. After the break, we're going to continue our discussion with Inga Fricke with the Humane Society of the United States. You're listening to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner. You're listening to Animals Today. You know, Animals Today is a project of advancing the interest of animals. Advancing the interest of animals is a nonprofit animal welfare organization. We're based here in Palm Springs, California. And if you like what we're doing, please consider donating a little bit to Advancing the Interests of Animals to support the continued production of the show. The website's aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Every day in our community, countless animals are starved, beaten, and abused by people. And sadly, most of these cases go unreported, and the abusers get away with it. And in many cases, someone knew about the abuse, but did not report it. So if you see someone hurting an animal, or even if you just suspect something, call the police or animal control right away. Animal abuse does not just mean physically abusing an animal. Neglecting animals can be just as bad. So if you see your neighbor's dog being underfed, left without water, or tied up in the backyard without protection from the elements, it is important to report that too. In many cases, you don't even have to give your name. 
and your phone call may save an animal's life. Also, we know that many violent and abusive adults got their start by first abusing animals. It's true, people who harm animals often turn their violence against other people, and that is a cycle we need to break. Remember, animals can't speak out for themselves, so reporting animal abuse can save lives. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Back to the show. We're speaking with Inga Fricky with the Humane Society of the United States. Inga, if some shelters have limited funds and limited resources and limited space and or have too many of a certain kind or type or breed of dog, let's say, and other shelters in other communities are in need of that type of breed or type of dog and have more space, shouldn't we be focusing more on transportation programs? Well, transportation programs are critically important to those organizations that have an overabundance of animals, and they certainly are an important tool in the toolbox. But unfortunately, they don't fix any problems. They're kind of a Band-Aid. They help that shelter get a little bit of breathing room for that day. They certainly can be life-saving to the individual animals that are transported, but they typically don't do anything to address those root causes of animals coming in. So until those, the reasons why animals wind up in the shelter in the first place are addressed and funds are invested into prevention, unfortunately that cycle is going to continue. Transports also carry with them some risks. There are always risks when you're moving animals around the country, but more important, many states, particularly those in the north that are high import states, are starting to feel concerns about things like diseases that are coming into their area. So transports are becoming much more of a focus of attention and regulatory efforts. But again, they can be a wonderful tool. They can certainly ease the burden for that shelter. They definitely bring new options for the animals that are put on those transports. But they are a Band-Aid in that they are not helping to solve the problem. And that's really where we as welfare professionals should be focusing much of our attention, solving the root causes of pet homelessness so that we eliminate the north-south disparity and ultimately eliminate the need for those transports of animals that might be at risk for euthanasia just for space concerns. Inga, do you see breed-specific legislation, which is prohibiting the ownership of certain breeds of animals, as a hindrance to achieving our goal? Absolutely. Anytime you are singling out one breed of animal, you are failing that animal and you're failing to address the problem. For example, when it comes to housing, very often we see restricted breed lists. Those lists are always completely arbitrary. They may ban German shepherds and pit bull type dogs and beagles and who knows what else. There's no rhyme or reason to them. And that's because there truly is no such 
thing as a dangerous breed of dog. There certainly are individual animals that are dangerous and that are risky to have, but that particular animal could be a dachshund. It right. could be a great Dane. It could be a greyhound. Who knows? Right. So unfortunately, when a particular breed or type of animal is painted with that broad a brush, it hurts everyone. It doesn't achieve the goal of making the community or the apartment complex any safer, and it definitely denies wonderful people and wonderful pets opportunities that they should have. So Inga, are you optimistic that we are approaching that point in which our country is no longer killing unwanted dogs and cats in our shelters? I am absolutely optimistic, and I'm certain that we will get there. We've seen whole entire areas of the country where few, if any, animals have to be euthanized for space in a shelter, for example, because those communities have dedicated the resources necessary to achieve that. It's really important, though, from my perspective, to remember along the way that ultimately the critical idea is not that we achieve some magic number or that we even necessarily get to zero by a certain time. We have to remember that quality of life has to be elevated and has to be a prime concern every step along the way. No one would want a community, for example, to achieve zero euthanasia at the expense of animal suffering within the shelter or within the community. So I am very encouraged that in this day and age, not only are we all moving to the point where we never have to euthanize a healthy, adoptable animal for space or other concerns, but we also have new research coming out, new studies being done, new opportunities to make sure that quality of life remains an equally high, if not higher, consideration, both for the animals that happen to wind up in our shelter and rescue facilities, but also in the community. And that's very encouraging because just achieving zero without those quality of life considerations doesn't actually help the animals. So yes, I am very optimistic that we will achieve both goals. We will ultimately get to the point where animals do not have to be euthanized simply for lack of resources or lack of a home, but also that animals will never have to suffer a life that may not be optimal. Mm, Wouldn't that be wonderful? Director of Sheltering Initiatives and Outreach for the Humane Society of the United States, Inga Freaky, thank you very much. You're more than welcome. Thank you for having me. Please stay with us. Coming up next, we're going to hear the perspective of another expert. She's from Best Friends Animal Society. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. You're listening to Animals Today. If you're like most people, you have lots of plans. A financial plan, an exercise plan, a career plan. 
You also need a plan for the care of your pets when you no longer can provide it. Every day, animals are sent to shelters, terrified and confused because their owners have become incapacitated or died. Unfortunately, many of them get euthanized. Some people don't give the future a thought. Others assume family members will care for their pets. A better way is to name caregivers and provide detailed instructions about your pet's feeding, social, play, and health care needs. But even designated caregivers can't guarantee your pet will join a stable and loving home. Good intentions sometimes take a backseat to life's realities, like a new spouse who doesn't like animals, a sudden desire to travel the world, or the adoptive caregiver's own illness. A legally enforceable pet trust offers the only assurance that your assets will be used as you wish to provide for the comfort and care of your cherished animal companions. Almost every state recognizes pet trusts. Find out how to create one today and take steps to make sure your pet doesn't risk becoming yet another sad shelter statistic. Plan for your pet's lifelong well-being. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org. Hi, this is Dr. Lori, and today's Animals Today Minute features the world's largest land carnivore, the polar bear. Mainly receiving nourishment in the form of seals, these majestic Arctic dwellers may reach heights of 8 to 9 feet and weigh as much as 1,700 pounds. Their adaptations to surviving the extreme climate include very thick white fur, even on their feet, black skin to absorb the warmth of the sun, a thick layer of blubber beneath the skin, and large flat front feet, which aid in swimming. Newborns weigh only about a pound and stay with their mothers about two years. Polar bears are classified as an endangered species with only 20 to 25,000 left in the world. And that's this week's Animals Today Minute. Welcome back. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and you're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm proud to say that we are now in our 11th year of continuous weekly broadcasts, bringing you animal welfare and animal rights news and stories from around the globe. Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please check them out at AIAnimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. That's AIAnimals.org. And thank you for your interest and your support. Our next guest is Chief Mission Officer with Best Friends Animal Society, Holly Sizemore. Welcome to the show, Holly. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Holly, reflecting over the past 20 to 30 years, please talk about the progress and achievements made in terms of reducing the number of adoptable dogs and cats euthanized in the U.S. due to overpopulation. And from what I can tell, that number seems to be estimated at one and a half million animals per year. Sure. Well, first of all, I have some exciting news to share. The 2018 data set just was released by Best Friends that looks at the number of animals being killed across the U.S. nationally. And we just announced that data a few days ago, and we are now, as a nation, down to estimated 733,000 animals killed. Wow. Incredible progress, whereas a couple of years ago it was estimated at that 1.5 million. 
That's fantastic. Yeah, and and when we look back even a little further, you know, it was estimated that 17 million animals were dying about 30 years ago. So when we look back that far, it's tremendous progress. And one of the biggest achievements, I think, is that we actually do have a much better understanding of the data. Even just a few years ago, the numbers of animals dying in shelters really was um, more loosely estimated than it is right now. Mm -hmm. And Best Friends has been working very diligently for the last three years to change that. In 2016, Best Friends put their stake in the ground at our national conference in Salt Lake City and said, we want to help lead the nation to get to no-kill by 2025. And when we made that announcement, we actually realized we didn't know enough precise information about which animals were dying and where. And so we started to pound the pavement and we enlisted dozens of volunteers and staff members and really went out and did a very uh, proactive data collection effort that's taken years to culminate into what we just launched a few days ago, a tool that's called the Life-Saving Community Dashboard. And so part of that tool is getting the data from every shelter we could find. And we, in fact, found that there wasn't even a master list of of brick-and-mortar shelters across the U.S. So Mm. we compiled that list, and we've been working diligently to get data. There's about 5,000 known brick-and-mortar shelters, and now we have data for over 3,500 of those. And it's it's that data that helps us then estimate that 733,000 killed. And so really that transparency issue, I think, has been a big leader in bringing a lot of progress to the country because yeah. you can't solve a problem that you don't know exists and you don't know what scale it's at in your own community. Right. So it's been really exciting to see more transparency yeah. in our movement. So more transparency, I think, has been a key driver to change. Mm-hmm. I think the other big achievements are, boy, the last 20 to 30 years, such a dramatic improved access to services for pet owners that help them retain pets in their home rather than having to give them over to a shelter when when life throws them a curveball. And another big advancement I think that's been key is this shift that we've seen from a punitive citation-based animal control model to more of a root cause solution-based progressive animal enforcement models that really get out there and work with the communities to solve the problems of animals running loose and animals entering shelters in the first place. And then I would say another big, big milestone is the widespread acceptance of trap-neuter return and specifically shelter-focused trap-neuter return, which is often um, referred to as return to field. And lastly, I think we've just been better in collaborating. I think we've learned a lot about how to work together better. And that is not just among animal welfare partners, but among animal welfare organizations, shelters, and the general public. Engaging the public, letting them know. I think for many years, shelters were so afraid to engage the public and tell them, animals are dying in our shelter. If we're going to change that, we need your help. I think 
we know now, and Best Friends has done research that shows that if a shelter is still having to kill animals, but they're transparent about that, that the vast majority of the public actually is then motivated motivated to help them do better and save more lives. So I think those are the the key drivers over the last 20 to 30 years. Holly, currently, what do you see as the greatest challenges or hindrances to further reducing the number of adoptable animals killed to as close to zero as possible? Well, there are still challenges. And, And I just returned from the Best Friends National Conference that was held in Dallas just last week. And I was able to talk with dozens, if not hundreds, of people who are making amazing progress, but many of them are also facing really tough challenges. And I think those challenges are very closely aligned with what we just talked about in terms of progress and achievement. Right. It's places where I meet these people, and when I talk to them, I'm like, oh, my gosh, you're operating in an environment that I operated in 30 years ago when there wasn't transparency, where there was a, a great mistrust of both the public generally and between animal welfare organizations and shelters, where there are resource deserts for services for pets and and pet guardians, like lack of no and low-cost spay-neuter and lack of affordable medical help for pets and lack of dog training services. I see these punitive-based animal control where citations are issued and and the public is viewed as irresponsible and and generally a lack of leadership's ability to try new things. I think what I see in these areas where we're just not making the progress, it's a lot of times due to leadership just not being willing to open their eyes and try new things and think about things maybe in a little bit different way than they did 10, 20, 30 years ago. And I think you just touched upon my next question, which is where should we as a society, as cities and towns and as individuals focus our attention, money and energy right now to eliminate euthanasia due to overpopulation and unwanted dogs and cats? Yeah. And you know what, Dr. Lori, what's interesting is that 20 or 30 years ago, there probably was an overpopulation of dogs and cats. Today, nationally, there actually isn't an overpopulation problem. Over 10 million people in the U.S. bring a new pet into their home every year. And with only 733,000 animals still being killed, there is easily enough homes for the animals. Where we used to often say, oh, there aren't enough homes for them all. Well, we know now today that there actually are enough homes and people actually want to adopt. And the real problem is, is that, well, there are capacity issues at certain shelters and in certain communities. There are um, supply and demand issues. Some of the greatest programs happening are ones where we're transporting, you know, these really lovely adoptable dogs from South Texas, and people are doing this all over the country, from places where there are still puppies and highly adoptable dogs dying to places in the country where there's actually a shortage of of dogs in these communities. So it's really not a overpopulation problem anymore. It's a supply and demand and it's a it's a shelter capacity and it's also how we engage the public and how we work together to solve the problem. We know how to solve it and that's the good news. And so really in terms of what individuals can do is you know, 
go to the Lifesaving Community dashboard, find out what's happening in your community, be willing to be a positive part of the solution. I think sometimes our shelters get beat up by people who are really disturbed and quite rightly so, disturbed by the fact that animals are being still killed in our nation's shelters. But being a positive part of the solution and being supportive of our shelters rather than blaming them, because this really is a societal problem that we collectively created and we collectively share the responsibility for fixing it. And so, of course, most shelters need volunteers and fosters and donors and, of course, always adopt. And I think this is something most people know now, adopt from a shelter or a rescue group. Don't buy from a breeder. I also feel like one of the biggest missing pieces that individuals have that I don't see enough of is making sure that their elected officials know that they want to live in a safe and humane and no-kill community. I travel around the country a lot, and I meet a lot of city staffers and elected officials, and they don't have a good enough understanding of how important this issue is to their constituents. And so I feel like one of the biggest ways that individuals can get involved other than helping their local shelter is to demand of their elected officials that they want to live in a no-kill community. They want the elected officials who are oftentimes in the oversight position of the municipal shelter anyway. So the elected officials are oftentimes in charge of overseeing the municipal shelter. And the public can really demand of those elected officials that they provide the appropriate support to those shelters and that they hold those shelters accountable. Because oftentimes these shelters are doing so much with so few resources. And sometimes the elected officials really are the ones who are creating the budgets and not giving them the the support they need to be successful. So really it goes back to, you know, Get involved, know what's happening in your community, know what the data says, really reach out to your elected officials, be a big support to your local shelter, and always make sure that you are informed, an informed and active advocate in your community. Okay, we got to take a break, and when we come back, I'm going to ask Holly when we will end the killing of our dogs and cats in shelters. You're listening to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for joining us on Animals Today. Each week, we explore the wide variety of new and important issues concerning the welfare and rights of animals, how people treat them, and where they fit in society. From whale protectors risking their own lives on the open seas to lawmakers fighting to pass legislation to assist animals to kids volunteering at their local shelter, Animals Today provides timely and in-depth analysis and interviews with experts and advocates from around the world. To listen, Join us every week on this station, listen on iTunes, or go to animalstodayradio.com, where you can access and listen to all the prior shows. And like us on Facebook and share your views. Much of our financial support comes from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIanimals.org. So check them out. This is Dr. Lori, and thanks for listening. We're speaking. 
speaking with Holly Sizemore with Best Friends Animal Society. Holly, a few minutes ago, you made the point that it's really not an overpopulation problem since there are more families who want to adopt than there are animals in shelters. So this is really a regional problem, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah, the problem is definitely right now in individual communities. And certainly it's the communities that often are underserved in other areas as well. It's oftentimes communities that are subject to more poverty, who are resource deserts in other ways with other issues. And so it really is a regional issue. And it's also a a sheltering issue insofar as there are regions in the country and sometimes one, it, it could be city by city. You may have one city that's this beacon of no-kill, right. and the next city over just refuses to, you know, get on the bus. They want to do things the old way. They're just really attached to the way things they've been doing things for 20, 30 years. So it really is more of a city by city issue. It's very much a local issue. Right. So what are the solutions to that? Well, I think, again, the Life-Saving Community Dashboard, not only does it give people the information about what's happening in their local community, it also shows which communities are doing well. Is there a community near me that's doing really well, and could they be of aid to my city, my town? I think so often in my world, I see a shelter who's doing amazing things. There may be a shelter two hours away that's really struggling. And so I just hook them up. And at Best Friends, we also run our own mentorship program. We have training and assessments. We are there to help shelters who who want to focus on more life-saving. We have a lot of tools to help them. And then really finding the bright spots in the region and and reaching out to them, they're always willing to help and to talk about the challenges that they faced and to give advice on how they overcame them. It's pretty remarkable when you get people in a room how much can be done and how much we can help each other solve this. We know that there are certain types of dogs that end up sometimes in a surplus in a shelter setting. We've seen it with chihuahuas. We've seen it with dogs that look like pit bulls. And now we're seeing it um, with husky-type dogs. Game of Thrones, sadly, um, created that trend, we think, that now you're seeing um, a surplus of husky-type dogs in shelter settings. And so it's really, again, about some places have a surplus, but other places have a shortage of this kind of variety and type of different kinds of dogs. And so it really is about getting them from point A to point B. And it's funny because I was at a regional um, summit where we do try to bring shelters from across their region together. And, you know, this conversation came up and, you know, about oh, we have all these chihuahuas. And, and you know, and so I asked the group, I said, okay, how many of you have too many chihuahuas in your shelters where those chihuahuas are are at risk of being killed just because there's too many of them. And half the room raised their hand. And I said, okay, how many of you know that you could easily adopt out chihuahuas if you had more of them? And the other half of the room raised their hand. And I'm like, okay, put on your name tags, have chihuahuas, need chihuahuas. And at lunch, talk to each other. I mean, it's it's That's so great. So, Holly, this is very encouraging. You believe, and Best Friends believes, that by 2025, we will become a no-kill nation, whereby we are no longer killing dogs and cats in our shelters. I wholeheartedly believe that. You know, just a couple years ago, there were only a few hundred no-kill communities across the U.S., and today, that number is now standing at 
a little over 4,300. And so this rate of change is just happening exponentially. We are on fire, and and I have no doubt that we are going to achieve that goal. Fantastic. I love it. Chief Mission Officer, Best Friends Animal Society, Holly Sizemore, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure being here. This is from a press release dated August 9th, 2019 from the American Psychological Association titled, When Working with Animals Can Hurt Your Mental Health. According to research presented at the annual convention of the American Psychological Association, veterinarians and people who volunteer at animal shelters face particular stressors that can place them at risk for depression, anxiety, and suicide. One of the speakers at this convention, Angela K. Fournier, states, People who work or volunteer with animals are often drawn to it because they see it as a personal calling. However, they are faced with animal suffering and death on a routine basis, which can lead to burnout, compassion fatigue, and mental health issues. Another presenter at this convention who looked at animal welfare and animal rights activists, as well as volunteers and employees in shelters and rescue groups, she was explaining that these people are the ones called upon in animal abuse or neglect cases, so they are exposed to these horrible stories, and they see the consequences firsthand of animal abuse when they might be trying to rehabilitate the animals. And in addition, you have the euthanasia that's going on in shelter settings. And she states, shelter workers are caught in a dilemma because they are charged with caring for an animal, and they may ultimately end that animal's life. She goes on to say, research suggests that this causes significant guilt, which can lead to depression, anxiety, and insomnia, as well as greater family work conflict and low job satisfaction. She continues... Experts suggest that animal welfare agents carry an even heavier burden than those in other helping professions who are susceptible to compassion fatigue because of the issues unique to working with animals, such as euthanasia and caring for living beings who have experienced pain and suffering but cannot articulate their needs and experiences. According to a study from the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association, from 1979 to 2015, veterinarians died by suicide between two to three and a half times more often than the general U.S. population. So we keep using this term compassion fatigue. And for those of you who are not familiar with it, Compassion fatigue is the physical and mental exhaustion and emotional withdrawal experienced by those who care for sick or traumatized people or animals over an extended period of time. Back in October 2014, we had the founder of Compassion Fatigue Awareness Project, Patricia Smith, on the show, and she explained that compassion fatigue is a type of secondary traumatic stress that might result in apathy, isolation, bottled up emotions, substance abuse, and other self-destructive behaviors. And caregivers and people in all helping professions, including individuals who work with animals, are susceptible to this type of stress. She talked about a host of things, including coping with frustrations that often accompany helping animals, avoiding despair and enjoying advocacy, finding balance between work and one's personal life, and taking care of yourself. And I will tell you, you talk to almost anyone who works with animals, and they will tell you there's a lot of joy and a sense of satisfaction in what they do. But with it comes many frustrations and sources of stress and anxiety, which, of course, can get so overwhelming and it can lead to compassion fatigue and can contribute to depression and anxiety. So all of you who work with animals trying to save them or make their lives better, we here at Animals Today want to acknowledge and thank you for all your wonderful work. 
And I want to remind you that you have to take care of yourself because unless you are emotionally and mentally in a good place, you're not going to be able to help the animals. Thanks for tuning into the show. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at animalstodayradio.com. Animalstodayradio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's animalstodayradio.com. Thanks for listening.